Well, one, uh, one of Luke's, uh, the author of Acts, uh, purposes in writing this, this what was a letter to, to, a, to a Gentile, but one of his purposes in, in, uh, in writing uh, the book of Acts, among other, others, is an apologetic one. He, not, he wanted to provide uh, an apology, not in the sense of asking for forgiveness, but a defense. That's what the, the, the word apologetic means, providing a defense um, for the nature of Christianity. Yes, he wanted to give an historical record of the beginnings of, of the of the Christian movement. He wanted to do so for evangelistic purposes, yes, as well for pastoral purposes to uh, encourage and to equip and to edify believers. But there is clearly also a sense that one of the, the main motivators for this letter, at least because of, uh, probably because of the problems that the church was facing uh, at the beginning uh, in the first century, when uh, Luke writes this record, is to provide a, a defense uh, that the Roman authorities would read, or people who were concerned about this, this new movement would read and understand that the Christian movement it was not some kind of revolutionary uh, movement, uh, political movement, that the Christian faith was in fact a lawful and a law-abiding religion. The intention of this work is to show to Rome as well, among other things, the need that there is no need to fear Christians uh, and the Christian religion because it is, in that sense, not a subversive political uh, re uh, revolutionary movement, although there is certainly... Uh, consequences that are seen even in our passage today. The passage that we will consider this morning recounts one of those episodes. And, and in it, Luke makes it clear that the, reception, uh, that the, recognition, uh, the recognition of the Ephesian authorities, in particular of this town clerk, uh, that the, the Christians had not done nothing wrong that they were actingly in accordance with the law of the land. That was indeed these craftsmen, these makers of idols there was, that were basically souvenirs in a sense, you could call them today, that it was in fact Demetrius and his fellow um, uh, workers that uh, because of their fear and, uh, and, and how they saw that they were losing business, that provoked this riot. So today we, we will consider this. This is the last part or, of the report of Paul in the, in the city of Ephesus in this third missionary journey. We already considered um, months ago the, his interactions with the, with the disciples of John the Baptist there at the beginning of, of chapter 19. Last week we saw how the the, the, the word of God grew and prevailed in this occultic um, culture. And today we will see the riot in Ephesus. We will first spend a, a little bit of time considering the, the, the Paul's future plans as he, 
intends to move uh, to other places in, in, the, in the world. We will then consider the report uh, of the gospel posing a threat to the, to the business, and that's from verse 23 to 27. We will consider as well the, the, the confusion that was caused by these craftsmen, the craftsmen in uh, the confusion that was caused in the city, verse 28 to 34. And then finally, we'll consider the, the, the intervention of this town clerk, of the local authority, clearing the Christian movement's name in that city. So first of all, Paul's plan. We read there in verse uh, 21 and 22 that he had purposed. We read that he had, um, um, before um, this, the narration of this riot uh, is given to us, we, we read that Paul had purposed in the spirit to, to go. After three years of very successful ministry in Ephesus, as we considered last week, uh, that resulted in the, the progress of the gospel, in the word of God uh, growing and prevailing, after all of this, he, the apostle now judge, judges it to be time to return to, uh, to Jerusalem. He, he to, purposes to do so uh, after... Um, going to Macedonia and to Achaia. It says there that he purposed in the spirit. Some translations vary here, but I, I think the, the translation here is quite fitting and quite appropriate, that he purposed in the spirit. And the New King James even cap capitalizes the word spirit there because it is indeed the, the, the way that Paul has always acted up until now. He, he purposes uh, things in as much as it is possible to him to ascertain the will of God, things that the Spirit inspires him uh, to do. The expression here uh, has no pronoun, and that's why the, most translators believe it to refer to the Spirit. John Calvin is, is quite interesting in the way that he uh, comments on this passage. He says, Paul purposed to take this journey through the instinct and the motion of the Spirit, that he may know that his whole life was framed according to God's will and pleasure. I think another hint that this is a, a spiritual direction, it is not just, well, he, he made a, his mind in his spirit, in, uh, in his spirit, as some uh, translations believe, is the use of that word there. I must, when, when referring to what Paul said, he says, I must also see Rome. That's where it was his plan, to go to Jerusalem, first, but beforehand to move through Macedonia and Achaia and to end up in Rome. The, the word must there is uh, a Greek verb that every, uh, or virtually every time that Luke uses it, in his gospel, in the gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts, virtually every time refers to divine will, to divine decree. It is necessary. It's often translated in the gospels. It is necessary that th these things should come to pass. It, it is that divine, unavoidable decree of God. In that, in, in, and Luke here uses it referring uh, or in the, putting it in the mouth of Paul saying, that Paul must, it is necessary that he sees Rome. It is very interesting. It is a, something to note as you read through the Gospel of Luke and then the, the second volume, which is the, the Acts, 
that we are going through. It is something very interesting that you can notice. In the Gospel of Luke, the, the, the central point, the central uh, uh, geographical point is always Jerusalem. Jerusalem is there. It's, it's the place where Christ goes to die on the cross and to be raised up uh, three days uh, later. But when you come to the book of Acts, the, the central point, the geographical center point that uh, marks this narrative uh, is Rome. There is clearly a, a shift here, uh, an intensifying of the preeminence of Rome, because Luke is trying to direct the attention of the readers that the gospel goes from Jerusalem into Samaria and Judea and then to the ends of the world. And it's from Rome that that is accomplished. We know from the book of Romans, the letter uh, that Paul wrote to the, to the Romans, uh, uh, that he intended to go to Rome and after go to what is now modern day Spain and, and Portugal. By the way, it's always the commentators always seem to forget that that region uh, has two countries in it. They're probably uh, American or something. They, 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 don't think, they, they don't know their geography. But he, he intended to go to Spain. He felt that from the, the standpoint, Paul felt that from the standpoint of a, a missionary, that he had already done sufficient or laid the sufficient groundwork, foundation in Asia, so he intended to move to other places. But before he do, does that, and that's the, what we read there in verse 23, about that time when he was already intending to go, when, when his work there in a, in a sense was finished, that laying of the foundation was finished. There was a great stir in the city. This man uh, named Demetrius, uh, a silversmith, someone who crafted idols with his, uh, with his hands, uh, he feared uh, a loss of revenue. He, filled, uh, he, he started to sense in the community uh, a, 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 sh a lack of reverence for, for the goddess Diana. So he, he, he started panicking. He started having trouble and, uh, with it. He, he sensed that the majesty of his goddess was, was being neglected. It, it is interesting, isn't it, that, that this happens, uh, or the way that this happens. Because there is seemingly no, and I think that is uh, alluded to as well, once you get to the, what the town clerk says about the, the believers in Ephesus, but it's seemingly a very non-confrontational way that these things come to pass. It's, it's a very natural, uh, organic process. People are being converted and just, it just, things are changing. Times are changing. If, imagine yourself in the position of Demetrius and, and you start hearing about this new uh, Jewish sect that came into Ephesus. And three years down the line, it, you, you notice ever since this Paul came into the, into the city, ever since this message about Christ, about this Jesus came, it's like things are changing. This, these people who are always talking about the way, they, they didn't call them Christians back then in Ephesus. They were the ones of the way. They, the, their behavior, it's changing the, the social makeup. It is interesting that, that, 
that this happens in such a natural way. But nonetheless, uh, he starts to feel the, the pressure in his purse strings. Because now, as opposed to three years ago, when there was a religious feast and thousands upon thousands would come out, now it's starting, you start to see the attendance numbers of those religious uh, pagan feasts. You start to see them come down. And you start to see people are not buying as many uh, souvenirs as they, they would before. So Demetrius perceived the danger and he reacted. He disguised his financial concern, his financial interest in, in local patriotism, in, in, uh, uh, in the cloak of religious zeal, when in fact he was more concerned about his finances. You could ask what, what, what sparked the, the unrest there. It was the cumul cumulative, let me say it like this, it was the cumulative effect of people's lives being transformed. Isn't that interesting? When we think about uh, transforming our culture, we think about one big person rising up and, and, and having powerful uh, oratorial uh, oratoric, uh, skills, and, and we think of this uh, unrest uh, often being caused by, by one particular fiery preacher. But in, in the case of, of the Ephesians, it was just the cumulative transformation that the community uh, experienced because of the gospel. They had burned books of magic and religious spell worth millions of pounds. They, but the gospel had changed not only the, themselves, but the entire life of the city. There comes a point, and I'm not saying this as an excuse to us, uh, because I... I I, I hate the expression, preach the gospel and use words if necessary. Words are necessary. Uh, that's a Roman Catholic, I believe, uh, Jesuit uh, author that said that. We, we believe that words are necessary. But there comes a point in the way that we live that you could actually say that you you don't actually have to say anything at all just by looking at how the Christian lives. Just by looking at, he's not there. Everyone's coming out, getting drunk and, and having these amazing parties and all of this. The Christians are not there. There's this community that just, just by their action, and again, I'm not excuse, excusing us from using words, but just by their action, this, this community, this new sect, the Jewish sect that appeared in Ephesus, just by their actions, this they are convicting them of their own sinfulness and of the, the, the lack of, of basis for what they do. Unbelievers felt threatened and judged by it. This band of brothers was threatening their way of life a way of life that they held so dear. So it's natural that deep resentment will raise up in those kinds of situations. And now we find it exploding. Demetrius f fires up as a kind of a, and I'm not being political here. I know there is quite a, talk, uh, a lot of talk about uh, 
strikes nowadays and union leaders. But in a sense, uh, Demetrius behaves like this union leader. He gathers together his, his uh, fellow companions of trade and business and he, he, he fires them up. He agitates them to such a frenzy that the whole city is brought into confusion. That, that they start shouting, Great is Diana of the Ephesians for hours and hours. We still see this today in, in many religious circles. The Muslims have a, their own chant that they like to chant in, in, in repetitive uh, way. It is a hallmark of, of these kinds of religions. But when they did not find Paul, we, we read, they seized um, Aristarchus and Gaius over there in verse 29, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions, and they dragged them into, into the city's amphitheater. And, and you can imagine a situation like this. Ephesus was not a small town in the middle of nowhere. Ephesus was the capital of the region of Asia. It was the, the thriving uh, um, metropolitan center. It was the place where thousands of people, the hundreds of thousands of people lived. And now they're all worked up to a frenzy. They couldn't find Paul, but they lay hands on, on these two Christians. They drag them into the theater. You can imagine the, the, the tension there. And we, and we must not be surprised with this happening. It's just a, by way of application here. When trouble comes on the heels of faithful gospel witness and, and, and living, let me emphasize the both again, gospel witness and gospel living, trouble, trouble will come. If we are faithful to Christ, we should expect, expect to suffer as he did. That's why you so often read about these martyrs and these uh, in the biographies. Uh, you open a book like the Fox's uh, Book of Martyrs that speaks about, uh, about many of the martyrs of, of the, the Reformation time. And you, you, you read about how they, uh, their last words and uh, their, their demeanor being, it's like they, they consider it an honor to suffer and even to die for the sake of Christ. Why, why you ask? Because they knew that this is to be expected. That in many ways, suffering for Christ's sake, that it, not in many ways, that really, at the end of it, at the core of it, suffering for Christ's sake is, is not a, a, a bad thing. It is a privilege of the believer. I'm not saying that this is not hard to understand, but, but if, you, if you understand it, you will consider it a, a a privilege. I'm not saying it is easy to understand, but it is nonetheless true. Before we move on to the, to the next section, let me just mention something about Paul here. I was struck. Uh, we so often look at Paul and we, we emphasize some of these uh, very good char uh, characteristics uh, of, uh, and the way he behaves, the way he loves his people, the way, the way he's so clear and, and in writing. Um, there are many things to look up to Paul as an example, but one that is often neglected, and I think it's, it's clear to see here, is his courage. So often we emphasize other things about Paul, but this one in particular, I, I don't think I've ever heard uh, a lot said about Paul's Courage. I never heard uh, much about said about that. But there is clearly 
something of Paul's demeanor in this interaction that, that should be emulated and looked up to by us, that we should learn and, and seek to develop in our, own, in our own lives. And it's not just courage for the sake of courage. Let me, let me draw here a, a kind of a, a distinction. We, we, there is something uh, that we could call Christian courage, and there is something that, uh, that we would call natural courage. And those two things are not the same thing. Let me try and, and distinguish them both so that we see it in Paul and that we can perceive it uh, in our own lives as well. Christian courage and I would, what I would call natural courage are, are distinct in the sense that they, one is irrational, one is temperamental, and the other is logical and, and appropriate. We have heard a lot about in our day about wars ever since February last year there's been this war in Ukraine and, and, and rightly so it is emphasized the courage of some of these soldiers that even though they know uh, they, they, they are uh, in outnumbered they act with courageous uh, um, demeanor and they, they, they perform the duties uh, of a soldier uh, very well and, and they, they're not afraid of death but I would say that's, that's that kind of animal courage. Because if you think about it, if they understood where they, they're going after their death and their need for the Savior, you would say they should be terrified. There are people who, who are wicked, profane, that take the, the Lord's name in vain, but they can act courageously. And I would say that is completely illogical. Because the bullet that will kill you in the field of battle will... In, will kill your soul as well or any hope that your soul might have had for salvation that man shouldn't be as courageous as he is albeit we, we admire it Christian courage on the other hand is, is most rational it's, it's that's, that sense that death has no sting death has no power over my life I, I, there's nothing in this life that can hurt me in a way uh, that is, that is <laughs> any hurt that I suffer in this life pales in comparison to eternity. Christian courage is that logical realization that I have nothing to fear because I'm in God's hands. And now if you bring those, uh, those two together, because so often we have Christian courage and we don't have um, constitutional courage, when you bring those two things together, it is a very, very beautiful thing to be seen. There are reports in, in history books about war that the, the Christian soldiers, usually the, the religious, uh, the, the soldiers that were Christian, were preeminent in the field of battle because they were brave, because they were prayed for their... Uh, they're cool and uh, determined. They were praised for their cool and determined courage uh, when faced with danger. And Paul has it. Paul is not afraid. He loves his brother. He, he sees them suffering there. He's not afraid. I'll go in. I don't care about what's going to happen. I don't care about uh, what, 
What, what lies beyond those gates of the theater? I'll go in. But there is one thing I, I need to mention that is seen here in Paul's Christian courage as well. Is that a Christian courage is only found when you're fulfilling a duty. If he's not fulfilling a duty, it shouldn't, there is no such thing as Christian courage. If you can convince a Christian that it is his duty to do, he will do it, uh, he will do it courageously. And Paul was like that. But in this case, he yields because he realized it was not his duty to go in. He was ready for it. In another situation, he was ready to go and die in Jerusalem. Even, even though, the, the te- because, uh, notwithstanding the tears of his friends, of his brothers and sisters, saying, don't go to Jerusalem, you'll die. He still went because he knew it was his duty to go. But here, albeit he is a firm individual, he also yields to the, to the common sense and, the, and, and, to his, and to the persuasion of his friends and his brothers. They probably said to him, where is this going to help? If you go to the theater, I know you won't, Paul, but think with me. What will happen if you go in there? What can happen? What, what, what is the best outcome from this? And he was persuaded not to go. He would have gone and risked his life. But he was persuaded that this was not the time for it. And there's something here, what not there? As Christians, we do not fear death, but we don't play with death as well. We don't tempt death. He did not fear death, but he did not court it as well. I like how Matthew Henry puts it here. He says, to keep out of harm's way as long as possible, provided we do not stray from the, paths of, from the path of our duties, that's what Paul did. Paul teaches us. Oh, uh, Paul teaches us to keep out of harm's way as long as possible, provided we do not stray from the path of our duties. We may be called upon to surrender our lives, but we are not called upon to waste them or to make light of them. So then, there's an Alexander is uh, this Jew is called up a spokesman for the. For the, in the assembly, the assembly here is just a gathering that usually would be orderly, that usually would be uh, an opportunity to make uh, important decisions, democratic decisions in the city. But as he raises up to speak, they realize he's a Jew. They shut, shut him down. Two more hours of, of chanting and shouting, great is Diana of the Ephesians. But then we have another person who steps up in verse 35. And I think it's very interesting and very, very important for us to realize this. At this point, this man, a town clerk, a town clerk would have been uh, the equivalent of a mayor of, that, of Ephesus. He would be the person in charge of the executive power of the city, uh, not just a secretary. Nowadays, we'd call 
people, clerks, they have uh, administrative work to do. No, in uh, the word there and the, the, the office that is being displayed to us in this passage is uh, an office of executive power. Um, Ephesus, I might, I could have, might have mentioned, may have mentioned this last week, but Ephesus was a free city. Uh, within the Roman Empire, you would have some cities which are free. Well, that, that meaning that they, they have their own set of rules. And provided that they keep to the, to the agreements that were made between the, 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 the empire, the Roman Empire, and the leaders of the city, you can retain that status of a free city. Quite a bit, although nowadays it's more ceremonial than anything, quite a bit like the city of London enjoys a special privileged status within uh, the administration, uh, the normal administration of cities. There is a, a degree of freedom, although here in London, the city of London is more of an administrative uh, ceremonial thing than, than actually represents itself in the, in the laws. The laws that are true outside of the city of London still apply within but he raises up to speak. He, he of course, has a vested interest as the, the, the city mayor, as the, the, the person in charge. He has a vested interest in keeping the city from descending into a riot that would endanger the, the status of a free city. And his intervention is, is quite interesting and quite telling. He argues with the, with, the, with the mob, he argues with the assembly, basically he's saying to them, look, why are you rioting in this way? Why are you so concerned about these, these few preachers, this handful of preachers? Our goddess Diana is worshipped here and worshipped throughout the world. It's not a, a few sermons by a few preachers that will endanger that. They will not destroy our religion. He condemned the uproar caused by Demetrius and his fellow countrymen. And he said, if you have anything to accuse them of, it's basically saying that they didn't have anything, but if you have anything to accuse them of, go through the proper channels. This is not the way we do things here in Ephesus. Take them through the legal processes. There are, bring a charge against them. Do not go down this route. And then he, he also warns the crowd, saying that, in fact... You, what you are doing may be uh, perceived as subversion and rebelliousness uh, against Rome. And in fact, we are the ones who are in danger of, judge, of judgment here. Isn't it interesting that the providential hindrance of Paul going into the, to the, to the, to the theater displays itself here as very providential. Had Paul been in the theater, as uh, this town clerk rises, we don't have the name, as this town clerk rises to make this pronouncement, a lot of things could have gone wrong. As he says this, a lot of people could have started saying, oh, Paul told them to say it. Paul has all these friends now that are in, in political uh, uh, power, you know, Another mark of the, the expansion of the gospel. He, he had friends, it, it says here, that they were officials of Asia. Asiarchs, that's the Greek word there. They were uh, rulers in Asia. They had preeminence. If Paul had been there, he could actually have been, uh, could have 
that presence could have misconstru been misconstrued as collusion with the town clerk. Calvin himself, he, he points this out. He says that um, he would not be, have been as well, he would not have been able to remain silent. Had Paul been there, uh, the accusation uh, of blasphemy against Diana might have stood. Because Paul was not shy in, in saying truth. And he would have probably said, your goddess Diana is a goddess made by human hands. That statue that you have there, that you believe fell from the sky from Zeus, it is a statue that was made by some human hands. He would have probably then been in the danger of, of being charged with civil disorder. So it was quite providential that he, that he refrained from going there. Had Paul been there and given the, the, the microphone as such, we know, we know there was no microphone, he would have most definitely have used it to speak truth to the matter. And that would, because not doing so, would be condoning the idolatry of the Ephesians. But cooler heads prevailed. Uh, there is a play on words there. In the same way that Demetrius says at the beginning when he's talking with his craftsmen and uh, inciting them in, uh, uh, to this riot, he says that they are in danger of, uh, of losing their, uh, their, their stream of revenue. The, the town clerk says, we are, you, know, you, you think you're in danger of that? We're actually in danger of losing our status. We're in danger of being on the wrong side of the Roman Empire. That is the danger. We are in danger of upsetting the Roman authorities. And that is far, in their opinion, in his opinion, that is far greater trouble than what these Christians have done. It is very interesting that this defense was able to be made of the Christians. And I, think that, I believe there is something we, we can and should learn uh, about this a whole interaction. So that, let me just draw in a quick manner uh, a few lessons. First of all, what we already know and we already spoke of, this, the, uh, it's clear here and it's been clear in uh, several other passages, is that idolatry is the norm in, in society. Whether they be the, the whether it is the golden calf built by the by the Israelites in the wilderness, whether it is the Greco-Roman pantheon of gods and goddesses and demigods and and all kinds of mythological creatures, whether it be the Roman Catholic images uh, in 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 their churches, whether it be in our society the the love for for money pleasure, sex, or leisure, there is always uh, a default position that the, the gap and the, the, the space or, the, or the, the void that exists because of no relationship with, with God, the vacuum that is created by rejecting God will always be filled by something else that is idolatrous in nature. But we must learn, mustn't we, how to interact and how to engage with culture that has become idol with a culture that has become idolatrous. It's interesting uh, to me 
that the companions here, they understood what the issue was and they addressed the issue at its heart. They were not concerned about tearing down the statues in the temple. In fact, they didn't. That's why the town clerk was able to provide this defense. But nonetheless, they were doing their work. They were transforming or they were they understood that the problem was in the heart first, and then it represented itself by these huge temples and by these idols and statues. So they addressed the problem, they addressed the illness of the heart, and left the, the symptoms to be resolved in time. They were not concerned um, about preaching against the temple worship, the, the goddess Diana's temple worship. They were concerned about transforming the heart. Those things will fall in time. I'm sure if you'd ask Paul, why is it that you don't go straight to the temple of the goddess Diana and preach against the goddess there? I'm sure Paul would have said something like, those things will fall in time, one person at a time. And they did. And they did. We're not robbers of churches. We're not iconoclasts. We are not blasphemers of other religions, are we? At least we shouldn't. Sometimes we, be, we, we devolve into that. We, we, we speak of other people's religions. It's more an attack on their, on their religion and on their, on, uh, than, uh, than it is speaking truth to their condition. But if you don't agree with me, let me read you once again the words of Matthew Henry. Those that preach against idolatrous churches and religions have truth on their side and ought vigorously to maintain it and press it on men's consciences. But let them not be robbers of those churches or religions. And he quotes the, the example of the, of the Jews in the book of Esther. That they were given victory over their foes, but yet they did not plunder. Nor blasphemers of those worships but with meekness instructing, not with passion and foul language reproaching those that oppose themselves. For God's truth has it needs not man's lie, so it needs not man's intemperate heat. The wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. We may learn, and we should learn, from the disciples here in Ephesus, how to interact with our culture one heart at a time. You, you cannot fix society by fixing it from the outward in. Ephesus was transformed in time, but it was from the inside out. It was one person at a time, one heart at a time, one conversion at a time. Secondly, let us learn that Christianity is not so, this revolutionary political movement that some make it out to be. And again, I, I know I'm railing a little bit against our brethren uh, on the other side of the pond today. Uh, fortunately, we, most of our uh, live streams are from the UK, so I don't think we'll get any nasty uh, emails. <laughs> uh, but so often, so often, we confuse Christianity with political activism. Our goal is not to transform this world by political activism. Christianity is not a revolutionary political movement that poses threat to public order and civil authorities. I'm guessing you, I usually try not to go into the news 
because it's always a, a dangerous thing. We, things happen the following week, and uh, and uh, whatever I said might not be as correct. But I, but I think this this is correct of saying. Have you seen the news with this Brazil um, election and the and the riots that happened in the in the in the capital city, Brasilia, where the protesters that were opposed to the to the to the president or to the party that was elected, they raided the 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 assemblies and the, and the, the Congress. One of the most saddening things that I saw, I don't know if, if that image, those images came through here. Well, I saw them on English television. Fortunately, no one uh, put subtitles, so, but I speak Portuguese and I understood. There was this one scene that made me upset to my stomach, that one of these rioters, he's there inside of the Congress building, in the, in the, in the hall where the, the Congress uh, um, and ministers, meet, uh, the congressmen meet, and you hear him with his flag, and he goes, glory to God! And you go, what, what has this to do with Christianity? This kind of political revolutionary attitude that you raise uh, uh, a Congress building? What happened to submit to respect and to honor those in authority. There is a time, brothers and sisters, and I think we all know of a, a clear example. There is a time where we go, no, I will not honor the king in this case because he's going against the will of God, because he's commanding things that God has commanded against. That I will not go there. But that's just about it. The only time that we are allowed or, in fact, required to go against the will of, uh, of, the, of those in authority. The Bible is quite clear. In, in the, New the New Testament is quite clear on that. Our Lord Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar, give to God what is God's. Uh, Paul often emphasized this, that we are to honor them, that we are to, to, to do it so that we, may, uh, that we are to pray for them. Uh, Paul so often said this. Why? I, I don't think I, it should be... Uh, it should remain unsaid in many ways because it's obvious. But because God is the one who put them there. God is the one who gave them the authority, the sword to bear. In many ways, God delegates his authority to bear the sword. So we should see the seats of authority in this world that are put over us while they are uh, not acting in disagreement with the word of God. And not commanding us to do things that we shouldn't do, we should ultimately see them as the ultim, uh, as a representation or as a, a, a an illustration of the ultimate and final authority of God, who will come and judge the earth. They have the authority to judge. They was given to them by God, and we are not called to be political revolutionaries. Oh, the the revolution comes, brethren. But it does not come by us uh, storming capital cities and, and congresses. That's not how the, the disciples did it here in Ephesus, is it? And the revolution came one heart at a time. One, self, one conversion at a time. There's much more I could say here, but... Finally, brethren... I think one, one of the, the most 
edifying things that this passage teaches us that we can see in this account of the uproar, uh, of the riot in Ephesus, is that we can see God's sovereignty at work. And I'll, I'll, well, I'll finish with this. We see in this passage, again, the Lord's care for his people. The Lord's work in defending his people. Sometimes he does it extraordinarily, as we considered uh, in uh, a few chapters back in, the, in Philippi. An earthquake and the, the doors swing open and, and it's clear that God is doing it because no one else could. Have you ever heard of an earthquake that removes doors from hinges and everything remains virtually uh, unscathed? It was God, by using an extraordinary means, saving his people. And here, it was God as well. This time, using ordinary means, common means, by, by hindering Paul from going into the theater, and by raising this man, who is not a Christian, at least I don't think we can imply that from anything that he said. In fact, if anything, we can imply that he was not a Christian because he speaks so highly of, of, the, of the goddess Diana. He raises this Cyrus, in a sense, or raises this man just like he raised Cyrus to accomplish his will, to protect his people, to accomplish his eternal plan. We do not need to fear anything in this world, brethren. Nothing will happen to us except what God permits for the greater good of our soul, for the expansion of his church, and for the glory of his name. And that's the greatest comfort that we can have. That the weapons of our warfare and how we interact with this world or the weapons of our warfare are, are not carnal, but they are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against God's, against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of God. This, those are not my words. Those are not the words of a commentator. Those are the words of God himself. There are weapons of our, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty in God. And that they bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So as we engage with our world, let us do so not by utilizing fanatical cries or the repetition of, of, of chants and, and, uh, or, and 